Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Wealth inequality is something that we continue to talk a lot about these days. In the richest country in the history of the world, tens of millions of people are struggling to get by. The middle class squeeze is real and millions of families can barely breathe. It is not right. The United States is, without question, a wealthy country, but it's also clear that wealth and opportunity are not spread equally throughout our society. So what does wealth inequality look like in the U.S.? Why should we care about it? And what are some ways we can begin to address the disparities? This week, I wanted to revisit a conversation that I had with Signa Mary McKernan, Vice President of the Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population here at the Urban Institute. This conversation was featured on our podcast about a year ago, but we're sharing it again because we think it's still pretty timely. We'll start with Signa Mary talking about what wealth really is and how we're doing when it comes to inequality. When people talk about economic equality in the United States, my impression is that they're often focused on the disparities in income inequality, but your work really looks more broadly at that idea of inequality. There's a lot of discussion about income inequality. But um, when we think about wealth inequality, I think that wealth is where economic opportunity lies. And it's so important. Wealth inequality is three times greater than income inequality by some measures. So what is the difference between income inequality and wealth inequality? Income, that's what you earn. That's a flow of money coming into your household. Wealth is what you own minus what you owe. So it wealth is not just money in the bank. It ends up being insurance against tough times because it's that savings. It's tuition to get a better education and a better job. It's capital to build a small business. It's savings to retire on and a springboard into the middle class. So that's why I say wealth translates to opportunity. And so wealth would comprise uh, home ownership. It might comprise retirement savings. It might also entail other bank savings. Yep. If you add up all your assets, if you take the value of your home, the value of your car, what you have in retirement savings, if you have some money in your checking account, savings account, cash, and then you subtract off everything you owe on that. Subtract off your mortgage, your car loan, and then you take that that difference of what you own minus what you owe on it. And then that is your wealth. In terms of wealth inequality and what you are seeing in the U.S. at this time, what are the trend lines? We're seeing that a rising tide is lifting some boats more than others. So wealth inequality has worsened over the last 50 years. If we take families near the top of the wealth distribution, what we find is that back in 1963, they had six times the wealth of families in the middle. So the, the typical American back in 1963, and now that is turned to 12, that families near the top have about 12 times the wealth of families who are just in the middle. So our country as a whole is doing well, but it's mainly people at the top who are benefiting. And so 
you see this intense concentration of wealth at that upper end. What are some observations about why that's taking place and what that means? Yeah, first, let me, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what it means. I think it means that the American dream remains out of reach um, for many of our low and middle income families in America. So that 12 to 1, think about that, what, what that means. So for every family that has $12, as opposed to another family that has $1, what does that mean for you, for your children, for your grandchildren, the difference that it makes over the course of your life? When an emergency hits and you want to have some money to help, and let me tell you, emergencies hit every American every year. So one family has $12 and, you know, yours might have one. Or when you want to help your children with a down payment on a home or your grandchildren with college tuitions. And, you know, these are investments that can provide a stepping stone to the middle class and can also mean a comfortable retirement. So that, that having $12 where somebody else has one makes a big difference in moving into the middle class and moving out of the middle class and just moving up our economic ladder. And when you look at these disparities, who is predominantly being affected or who is being left behind? So when we started to look at wealth inequality, um, two groups popped out of our data. One is African-Americans and Hispanics. And then the other group is today's young. It's millennials and Gen X. And for those groups being left behind, what exactly are you seeing in the data? For today's young what we're seeing is that they're stagnating. They're barely breaking even with their parents. Um, it used to be in America that every generation did better than the previous, that this is no longer necessarily the case. And are there other particular forms of debt? Uh, I'm thinking education-related debt, medical-related debt that affect these specific groups um, more intensely? Yep. One thing that we did is when this finding about um, today's young, the, the millennials and, and some of Gen X popped out, we looked and we broke down the different components of wealth to try to see, like, where where is this? Because one of the answers was like, oh, it's lattes. <laughs> They're buying more lattes, right? Avocado right. toast. Avocado toast. Um, but what we saw is that back in 1963, you know, people that age had zero student loan debt. And, and then today, it's second only to mortgage debt. So student loans are a big part of that. And then we, we can't really see medical debt in our wealth data. But this was where we were looking here at the Urban Institute at past due medical debt and medical debt and collections. And that's where that surprise is that the young have more there too. And um, as in part, they're less likely to have health insurance. Are there disparities in the wealth gap that correlate with racial or ethnic background? Yes, uh, the racial wealth gap is large. Uh, white families have 10 times more wealth than um, African-American families and eight times more wealth than Hispanic families. So those are, those are large gaps. And, you know, their racial wealth gap also grows sharply with age. It's smaller when people are younger and then it grows larger. Now, you would think in the last 50 years, given the number of civil rights reforms, the types of changes that have taken place in the country, that some of those disparities would have decreased over time. Has that been the case? 
Um, no, they have not decreased over time. And I think three key reasons why is that uh, first, African-American and Hispanic families are less likely to be in these automatic savings vehicles, such as homes and retirement accounts. And it was a surprise to us to find that African-American families are also more likely than white families to have student loan debt. The second is that federal wealth building subsidies for homes and retirement accounts leave out lower income families and so leave out a lot of African American and Hispanic families. So these, the cards are stacked against them. And then third, income inequality and earnings gaps are always also important, but they're only a part of the story. Our country is built on the premise that it provides economic opportunity, but there are entire groups of people who aren't getting the same chances to move up. So what I hear you saying is it's a combination of legacy of discrimination and income uh, disparities in terms of income inequality. It's also a product of discriminatory policies, both federal, state, and local, that have played out in the context of communities around the country and have uh, represented a barrier to homeownership and wealth building for communities. Yes, yes. I think, though, it's it's not just an income story. I think that's the first thing that popped into our minds, too, right? Oh, it's less income, so you can't buy that home. But African-Americans and Hispanics are less likely to own homes than whites at the same income level. So it is in part, it's this inheritance, it's these large gifts, it's this wealth gap and discrimination continuing to be passed from generation to generation. Urban Institute research finds that white families are about five times more likely than African-American and Hispanic families to inherit money. And when they do inherit, they inherit less money. So these disparities continue to this wealth gap. And then think, this is the money that could be used for major family investments, like attending college or a down payment on a home. Less than half of African-American and Hispanic families own homes, compared with nearly three-quarters of white families. And the racial homeownership gap is worse today than it was in 1976 for African-Americans, and only slightly better for Hispanics. So you've shared a number of statistics, and you painted a picture that seems pretty surprising just how concentrated the wealth is in our country. But I think there is a question that a lot of people still might ask, which is, why should we care about this inequality? Wealth inequality matters for everyone, not just people with low wealth and not just poor people. And that's because a strong, vibrant, and thriving middle class is important for economic growth. Inequality can weaken the economy, increase crime, result in a less educated population, and more people needing help from the safety net. So inequality can lead to a lack of opportunity or inability from different parts of our country getting access to quality education and these other sorts of like mobility generators, this chance to actually move up the ladder in the country. So let's pivot then. Let's talk about what we might actually be able to do to address this challenge of increasing inequality and the wealth gap in the U.S. What are some potential federal policies, state and local policies that you might recommend to policymakers out there on how to actually address these issues? 
Right. Um, one is reform the mortgage interest deduction. And we saw a little bit of that in this you know, current tax bill. But we want to reform it so that it benefits not just those at the high end of the income scale. And then we want to replace it with a first-time homebuyer's tax credit. And that is not something that we saw. And that is something that would more equally benefit all homeowners and then also be more effective if part of our goal is increasing wealth. The current mortgage interest tax deduction just uh, incentivizes debt, having bigger and more expensive homes. And that's where it came down a little bit. But I think a a first-time home buyer's credit would be one way. A second would be to promote retirement savings through automatic IRAs, individual retirement accounts. Nearly half of U.S. workers do not participate in employer-sponsored savings plans, such as 401k plans. Um, A lot of them don't have access to them. And so, you know, states like Oregon are really um, leading the way in helping people save for retirement. Is this an area in which states and localities can lead the way, that if there is not leadership from federal government on developing policies to address wealth inequality, that this can be a a space for their leadership? Yes. And I think more and more city leaders are recognizing this, and we see real leadership on that front, whether it be in Oakland, San Francisco, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, Um, And St. Louis, Missouri, there we see local leaders uh, helping with um, children's savings accounts, with taking their employees first and thinking about their financial security, looking at, you know, parking tickets and parking enforcement and fees and fines and what that does to families' finances. So they are um, really shining leaders that are looking at the financial security of their residents. What can people do as individuals, as families, to start to prepare themselves and to build their own wealth? They can do a lot. I mean, it's some of it's not fair that our, our policies and our systems don't help people more, but there are things that you can do uh, for sure. Uh, no matter where you are on the income spectrum, you can save. Evidence from savings programs and our research shows that you can. And you might think, oh, but I I don't have thousands of dollars. But our research shows, Urban Institute research shows, that even having as little as $250 to $700 or $750 in non-retirement savings, so kind of an emergency savings, can make a big difference in your life. Sure, more money is better, more savings is better. But that this savings is um, even at least as important as income. That if you are low income and have some savings, you are better off than being middle income and living paycheck to paycheck when an income or expense disruption hits. And and one of these emergencies is going to hit. It hits 60% of Americans every year. But having that $250 to $750 means that you can repair your car and and get to work um, without taking a payday loan out and potentially going into a spiral of debt. So those are great tips, but how do people save? How do you make that happen? What you do is you get into automatic savings vehicles. I mentioned those once before. For emergency savings, set up automatic deposits into a savings account each pay period. 
you know, it could be as little as 2% or 10% of your income, but having an automatic process of sending money to directly to a savings account is what matters. Save part of your tax refund at tax time, a bonus at the end of the year, five weeks in the month and you're getting paid a little extra, save that difference. These emergency savings will not only help you weather an emergency, they'll set you up for more successful homeownership and retirement saving. Retirement savings for those with an employer-sponsored retirement account, the, those that are lucky enough to have one, uh, set up regular deposits. Again, it's this automatic feature in employers' pension plans that makes the process of saving easy and helps people save over time. It's automatic. And the same thing with homeownership. Homeownership is a big wealth-building tool, not because necessarily prices increase, home prices, because again, we've seen them come down. But this monthly mortgage payment, it's like a a form of forced savings. Each month when that comes along, it's, it's a way for you to put away some money and then increase your wealth. These are fantastic tips. Signa Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, wealth inequality is growing in the U.S., In the 1960s, the average family had one-sixth the wealth of a family at the top of the income distribution. Today, the average family only has one-twelfth of the wealth of those at the top. Two, young people and African-American and Hispanic families in particular are being left behind. And three, research shows even a small amount of savings between $250 and $750 can help protect against the emergencies that life throws our way. So that's our show. Thanks again to Signa Mary McKernan. You can find the nine charts on wealth inequality at www.urban.org. It's definitely worth checking out. And if you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It takes just a few seconds to subscribe and will allow you to get more insightful conversations like this directly on your phone. Thanks to our editor, Riley Byrne, and our producer, Yafon Powers and to Vicky Gann for all her help. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off. <laughs>